0: Welcome to another edition of Brazilian Talk. Today's May 14th, 2011. The cover story of the New York Times Magazine, published on May 4th, 2011, was written by Will S. Hilton, an established writer who covers politics, science, music, film, crime and travel for outlets such as Rolling Stone, GQ, Esquire, and of course, the New York Times. The story, what happened to Air France Flight 447, couldn't be more relevant to Brazilians as he focuses on the crash and aftermath of the flight that left Rio de Janeiro on the way to Paris on June 1st, 2009, and took the lives of all 216 passengers and 12 aircrew. The article is still available on the New York Times website, but on his exclusive interview, Ms. Hilton discusses his experience writing the article, as well as the crash itself, the family struggle, and the unusually slow investigation led by the French government. Mr.
1: Hilton, thanks a lot for talking to me about this. Your article, What Happened to Air France Flight 447, did a terrific job narrating the human loss and tragedy behind the Air France Flight 447. I know you've written long investigative pieces before, but I was wondering if you can talk about whether this was particularly different or if there was anything that was sort of a new experience for you as far as writing a piece.
2: Right. I, I wrote one, one other piece about a, a plane crash, but it wasn't a contemporary plane crash. And it's interesting you should ask that question because the experience of writing about this plane crash was so dramatically different from the experience of writing about the one other that I've covered because that one was a B-24 bomber, an American bomber plane from World War II that was shot down by a Japanese garrison in the South Pacific in 1944. And the plane was never found at the bottom of the ocean there um, until 2004, so 60 years passed. And a lot of the story in that case turned out to be about this long intergenerational um, absence, the sort of empty chair at the dining table, for lack of a better descriptor. And I found in the families that um, the, the wound had never really healed because the plane had never been found and they had no way of knowing for sure that, the, that their family members, the 11 uh, airmen, U.S. Army Air Force uh, airmen uh, on board the plane had actually died. Of course, there are a few cases from World War II where soldiers disappeared and then were found much, much later living in caves or having uh, made a life somewhere on the Asian continent. and, and so. Um, This was a hope that a lot of the families actually clung to for decades and and so the process of finding that plane in 2004 and then the military uh, effort to recover the bones from underwater in 2005, 2007 and again in 2008 which I joined on that expedition to to observe um, were really, really intense experiences for these families. And so, so, and so in that sense, I guess there's a similarity that it was a powerful emotional experience for the families. But the families from that flight, which I, I called by the tail number 453, um, all wanted their remains to come back. It was important for their family in order to move on. And In this case, with flight 447, it went down just two years ago, um, about a third or a halfway between uh, Brazil and Senegal over the South, South Atlantic Ocean. Um, not all of the families want the, their loved ones to, to be brought back up from the bottom of the ocean. There's a, a, a big difference um, between the, the sort of unified sentiment of the families on the first plane crash I ever wrote about and the very divided sentiment of the families from this crash.
1: And I can assume that meeting the families while still being objective about the piece and about your goals must have been hard. How, was, um, how did you come about about actually talking to the families and getting their feedback while also maintaining your objectivity about what to report? And did you allow them to, for instance, censor anything and and abuse?
2: I had plenty of family members who wanted me to know about their loved ones who had died, and they wanted me to understand things about the people who were lost um, that they didn't want me to print. So there were plenty of details about people's lives where they said, listen, I want you to understand this about Will or about Rodrigo, and I don't want you to print it, but I think you need to know it because if you're going to describe other things about this person, you need to have some context for it. And so there were a lot of things that I allowed people to say to me off the record about personal struggles that they had with their loved one or that their loved one had with someone else. And then if I was going to be speaking with that person, they thought it was important for me to understand the background. And I definitely allowed them to Say those kinds of things off the record and didn't use them and I'm happy to to say that the, all the family members that i that I spoke with for the story have reacted positively to the story so um, i'm glad that I was able to protect the to to protect their interest in in keeping some parts of their loved ones' lives private while also um, showing a very important part of the story that's about grief and loss because I think it's easy in a plane crash to get fixated exclusively on the metal, on the wreckage, the plane itself, the search for the plane, the technology to find the plane, what may have gone wrong with the plane and, and holding people accountable for any oversights or mistakes that were made and not keeping the plane in tip-top shape and all those things are important. But I think nothing is as important as understanding that, that the reason those technical things matter is because people's lives are stopped and interrupted and irreparably harmed by a tragedy like this. And without the human element, the rest of it's just just mechanics. Yeah, but I think you
1: did a great job sort of also capturing their frustration, uh, and the family's frustrations with uh, the investigations, with you know how things have been proceeding since then. You talk about the diplomatic struggle between the French and the Brazilian government. Is it clear of what government should be ahead of the investigations? Because the plane was French,
2: does it mean that? You know, it's of confusing, isn't it? It's so because the nearest uh, international, the nearest national jurisdiction to the last known position of the plane is Brazilian, it was appropriate for the bodies to be returned to Brazil for the autopsies. Because the plane was flying under the French flag, it was appropriate for the French investigating authorities to research the aircraft as well as the uh, flight itself, the airline that, that that owned the plane and that was running the flight. Um, And so it creates sort of inherently an international gulf between two different parts of the investigation. And because this whole international plane crash, this this sort of bureaucracy of it is not a very well-oiled machine, there were some awkward uh, incidents. For example, I I spoke with the head of the um, IML morgue in, in Recife, in northern Brazil, At some length, uh, a couple times about um, how the relationship had been with the French investigating agency, and it wasn't good. Um, His his explanation was that the French uh, government initially called him after the crash and said, "When the when the remains of these 50 passengers um, are brought in to the morgue, we'd like to send someone uh, to." participate in or observe the autopsies because a lot of the passengers are French and we're we're leading the technical investigation and so on and so forth. And Dr. Sarmento, the the, um, the forensic scientist in his CIFI said, sure, that's fine, send somebody over. And as he related to me, uh, he was basically at work one day and 20 uh, French scientists showed up and decided, announced that they were gonna come in and do the autopsies themselves. And as he described it to me at that point, he said, absolutely not. Um, not, You can't come in and take over the morgue and the whole process, but you can send one person in, which is what I initially agreed to, to observe. And we'll give that person essentially veto power. And he also gave the same kind of authority to one representative from Interpol so that if any one person, including the French or the Interpol representative said, I think this is being done wrong or I think this uh, identification is mistaken or anything like that, then they would take it back to square one and start over and make sure everybody agreed on the results, um, which is absolutely an appropriate way to do it. But they, uh, there, there was a, a desire by the French to have more authority than, than than Dr. Sarmento was willing to grant them, and so there was some real tension there. He described it as a diplomatic incident. I'm not sure exactly. Uh, which political and diplomatic figures ended up negotiating it. But it sounded from his description like it was not a a pleasant few days. From your experience,
1: do you think that there's a need
2: to rethink how countries are negotiating airspace? I think generally countries are pretty bad at cooperating on things. I mean, you may know how difficult it is for an American citizen to get a visa into Brazil. And you may know that one of the reasons is because the American government has made it so difficult for Brazilians coming into the U.S. And so there's this sort of goofy governmental one-upsmanship that makes things difficult for all the rest of us who just want to go see our family or friends or see some place that sounds like a good place to spend a week of vacation, whatever it may be. Just getting around shouldn't be made so difficult by our government, and they certainly shouldn't be doing it just to have a little war with each other through the visa process. I think it's kind of silly. And I think that it's actually sometimes rather dangerous. I mean, there was an example of a guy, a Canadian citizen named Brad Clemens, who was living in uh, Brussels and working for Coca-Cola and had some business in Rio and and flew into Rio to do this business. And because he was coming from Belgium where the um, relationships are better, I guess, between the two countries on visas. He didn't. Nobody said to him, you know, as a North American citizen, you're subject to some of these strict visa requirements. And so he actually was turned back. He, he had the wrong doc. He didn't have the right documentation. It was too difficult to get it on a Sunday night, all fixed up. And that's how he ended up on this pl- plane going back, just three hours after he had landed. And so that kind of thing is, I think, m- emblematic of. Of you know what can go wrong when governments are just back and forth sort of trading penalties with each other. Um, But specifically with regard to the um, air crash investigation process, you know I think in the case of and I'm not an expert or even remotely um, qualified to discuss the the accidents from 2006 and 2007 you described, but I I do know a little bit about the. the Brazilian and the American air crash investigation process as contrasted with that of France. Um, and so whatever other obstacles there may be between the countries in cooperating, at least it's a fairly similar process. The French process is just radically different. And that can create problems when there are you know, people from 33 countries on this flight um, spread across five continents. And then the French are running the investigation, and they're running it in a way that is very different from what most people uh, are accustomed to in their country. In what way is it different? Um, well, so the first big difference is that the French system is designed to split the investigation into two different processes that are run on parallel tracks and that... Uh, when one part of the, the, the one investigation is purely technical, uh, this is run by an organization called the BEA. Uh, it's a French government organization. that's purpose is to explore what um, happened on the plane without taking into account any possibility of um, wrongdoing or error or fault. Um, and they're very clear that even if they discover, for example, that a search process took way too long to be dispatched, or if they find that a part on the plane was faulty and it should have been replaced, they make no comment about this in their reports. They're, they're incredibly um, reserved in the things that they say, and so reading their reports can be astoundingly frustrating for family members because the reports make these sort of glancing references to things that are troubling In fact, they're even troubling to some of the BEA investigators, and yet they never really point clearly to the things that maybe should have been done differently or could have been done differently. Um, Whereas the other side of the French investigating process is oriented toward toward accountability, and this is the French judicial investigation um, that's run by part of the gendarmerie. And their goal is to look at the things like a faulty part that should have been replaced, or a bad um, protocol that could have been performed by, by some airline, and, and 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 to say this was a mistake, and and just you should be held accountable. And so that process took 22 months to launch, uh, and it launched on March 18th, with the first criminal charges uh, being filed against both Air France, which is the airline and Airbus the manufacturer Um, and so for 22 months families were watching this incredibly technical side of the investigation be conducted without any attention paid to the possibility of mistakes or wrongdoing and it was spectacularly frustrating for some people to the point where it began to, to seem like it could be a cover up
1: and is it an, is it particularly unusual to have two companies like Airbuds and Air France being charged with
2: manslaughter, or was, did that happen before? yeah it's and a good what question does that mean exactly you know? right. And I think it's something that that a lot of people have have misunderstood. The charges for manslaughter are sort of the process by which the investigation begins um and so it's this very odd system where um they file the charges and then they do a lot of research to find out if there's any basis for the charges. Um, It it may be the case that that there will be um, an aggressive um, prosecution of those charges, but it may also be the case that having filed the charges and beginning the research, they'll decide that there is no basis for the charges and they'll withdraw them, that could happen as well. And so it would be a mistake to read too much into the charges and say that because they've been charged, there's a very good chance that they'll be found guilty. That's not really the case. But it would also be a mistake to say that, um, that the charges are purely pro forma um, because, of for course, 22 months have passed since the crash and Sylvie Zimmerman, the French magistrate who filed the charges, has, has some reason to believe that it's at least worth investigating.
1: And do you think that um, a lot of it now, and realize heavily on whether they can extract information from the black boxes. I mean, um, what's the importance of the content inside those two black
2: boxes that were recently found? It's, it's incredibly important and, and I'll, I'll tell you why, because one of them is called the Flight Data Recorder and it's basically the hard, uh, the hard record of what was happening on the plane. Um, with the plane, what the plane, what what the readings were, what machinery was failing, what machinery was working. We know some of the machinery was failing because 24 messages were shot up into the atmosphere and relayed back to a maintenance center in France by a satellite in the last couple minutes of the of the of the plane's um, flight. But um, we don't know what other things may have gone wrong, and and so the the parameters of this flight data recorder will give us a huge. Cache of information to to explore, but the other f- other recorder, which is called the cockpit voice recorder, is just as important, if not more important, because it's an actual audio recording like this podcast of what people were saying to each other. These two pilots who were flying the plane, and possibly the third, um, if 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 he wasn't in his rest period at that point, so there may be as many as three different people telling. Uh, each other what they think should be done, making decisions, reading the messages from the flight uh, computer and trying to figure out what these messages mean. And so there's this enormous role uh, once the plane's out of autopilot uh, for for the pilot to make decisions, the pilots to make decisions and what decisions they made and why may give us a real sense of what was going on up there that that the flight data recorder alone wouldn't tell us. Is there any idea when the the, results will be reported? You know, it's another one of these things where, um, because of the way the French investigation is run, it's not clear to anyone exactly what the the protocol will be. Um, They, those, those boxes took quite a while to get, the first one was found on May 1st, the second one was found on May 3rd, um, and then it took about a week for them to get delivered to the headquarters of the BEA, the technical investigators in Paris. I've been down to the basement of the BEA where, there's, where those boxes are now, um, and they have an extremely sophisticated uh, system, arguably unique in the world, for reading these solid-state memory modules and trying to figure out what's on them. So even after a couple years um, underwater, um, which are obviously not ideal conditions for these chips, um, they may very well, and in fact, I'd say it's probable that they'll be readable, but how long it will take. For us to find out um, what's on them is is much more difficult to assess. I mean, the, the NTSB investigators I spoke with thats the National Transportation Safety Board in the U.S., their uh, protocol is, would be that eventually the transcripts would be released of the cockpit voice recorder, for example. That's not necessarily what's going to happen with the French investigation. We may end up with portions of it or paraphrases of it instead. Um, it's also, you know, in, in, in the NCSB, I mean, I, their their protocol um, would be much more transparent in this process. And whereas with the French, there, it's very difficult to get answers on a lot of these kinds of things. Um, and so, you know, they, there may be a leak, for example, next week. Somebody may leak it to a, a French reporter that they're friends with, uh, what they're finding. Um, or it may be three months before a formal report is released to tell us um, what they've found. And so its just just no way of knowing.
1: I think you, you talk in the article, you mentioned several ways in which this process could, you know, could sort of be easier. And even at one point, you talk about the possibility that planes will start live streaming their information directly to satellites. And, you know, so there's no need to necessarily find a black box if, you know, if that disappears. What do you think can be done by, Aerospace companies to make you know, flying safer um, and, and investigations more effectively in case this happens again.
2: You know, it's it's a great question. It's really, it's it's. Um, it, I'm tempted to say that that the answer is almost funny because you'd be surprised how many aviation buffs and and professionals have written to me about the article to say, among other things, that. I'm too hard on the black boxes when I say they're archaic and that they're approaching obsolescence Um, and they say there's, there's no way that this live streaming data to the ground rather than keeping the data on the airplane will really work. And I guess they don't know, but there are companies doing this. So there's a company called Aeromechanical Services in Canada that has over 200 aircraft in the air now with this technology. Um, and that those aircraft are in thirty different airlines. They're just not in. They weren't on flight 447. They're not. It's not being used by Air France. Uh, it's not being used by m- many of the big airlines. But the technology itself is not. It's not some experimental or wild-eyed fantasy. It's there. Um, it's it's the 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 black box on the plane will probably always be there. It's uh, there's no reason to. Uh, limit yourself to just one kind of streaming. Um, there's a, a nice, something nice about the redundancy, but this idea that a pilot can push a button when, they, when something funny is happening on the plane. And uh, I say something funny, I mean something bad. Something's going wrong on the plane, and the pilot pushes the button, and this data starts to stream off the plane. The idea that the black box on the plane itself will be the only place that the flight data is recorded is an idea that is absolutely nearing obsolescence. And it just doesn't make sense in a time of uh, where wireless technology is almost impossible to get away from everywhere else. Okay, thank you so much, Will, for your time. Well, thanks for your interest, I appreciate it. Take care.